Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast, where we do actually talk about movies from time to time. I am one of your hosts, Brian Steve Wood, and with me this evening is my good friend and co-host, Chad Mintz. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the actual world of movie news. So, Chad, Disney held a shareholders meeting, and it may or may not have pissed off the star of Chang-Chi. And it also provided us with some very important business info. They have doubled their their subscription numbers in less than 24 months of operation. Your thoughts, sir, on the House of Mouse reaching 118 million subscribers? Um, that is amazing. When what was the talk last year? I think they wanted like 30, 60 or something over like four or five years. It was some stretched out time for them to consider it a success. And they had that last year. And now that they're what you said, 117? Yeah, one se- they went from 85 to 117 in a, in, in a, from the last reporting in, in December of uh, physical year 2020 to uh, the first three quarters of physical year 2021. It went from yeah, 85 million subscribers to 117. That is incredible. And it has to be the, the most growth of any of these streaming services. So it, it seems it firmly cemented it as the number two. Um, I don't, I'm curious to know what, how much more they think they could grow. Um, I know that I saw, there was a list that had all the numbers of the streamers and I know Netflix is one. I don't remember how much further ahead they are, but it's like Netflix, a gap, Disney, a gap. And then it's like, uh, HBO max, HBO max had like 60 something, um, Paramount and something Oh. Paramount, no, it's HBO, it's HBO Max, Hulu, and Paramount was the last one. Um, and that seems to be, I would imagine that is your hierarchy of streamers at the moment. So for Disney, that it puts them in a good place. If they're firmly at number two, then they become kind of like Netflix. When people are trying to figure out what streamers they're going to get, Disney's automatically slotted in as number two because everybody has it and has all this content. I'm really kind of flabbergasted about how much it has grown, but also that corresponds with all of the shows that Disney Plus has started rolling out. When it first came out, you know, we got the Mandalorian a few months after it came out or like the next month, but it was a hope. It was nothing new. And a lot of people complained about it. It was like, you know, they got the old stuff, but there's nothing new. Now you have new show after new show, all these series coming out. So it makes sense that it would kind of jump up to correlate with that. And also correlating with that is the, the whole, you know, theatrical release uh, movies that they have with the premiere access or not. That's another thing that probably factors into that. But it um, is pretty incredible, the, the, the jump that they took, knowing that their projections for five years was half of that if remembering correctly as of july the 5th 2021 netflix had 208 million paying subscribers 74 million in the u.s disney plus had 103.6 million subscribers um total um the majority of those being disney plus some of them being 
Hulu and, and ESPN Plus, obviously. Uh, so it, it goes from Netflix at 208, Disney at one, one, well, 103.6, which we know now is, what, 117. And then you've got HBO Max at 63.9. And then you've got, you know, uh, more than 200 million global uh, Prime subscriber, um, 175 million of which streamed movies at some point over the last year. And then Peacock had 42 million. And then Paramount, Paramount Plus at 36 million. Okay. Stars at 29.5 million. And Discovery Plus at 15 million. Um, so it I, goes so it goes from 208 to 111 or 117, 2808, 117 to 63.9. Okay. That is quite impressive for the mouse. It does show you how entrenched Netflix Netflix is into this whole streaming business. But you gotta say Disney is a strong number two. Um, and as long as they keep their their current schedule going, they'll probably remain at number two. Um, yeah, the all those things tell me not so much about Disney, but the rest of the streamers. And eventually these things will have to shake out. Was was Apple on that list? And they don't have a number for Apple because Apple hasn't given them a number. Yeah, that then that probably says a whole lot. Uh yeah, you know, eventually this is all gonna shake out and some of these streamers are gonna have to go away. So we, we well, have we a already list. know Discovery Plus is gonna roll into HBO Max. This is true. It's a, it's a matter of how many streamers do we think are viable in in with subscriptions in this day and age? Like like you mentioned stars. Um, I have I have stars, but it's only because I have I have stars through cable. So that's kind of different. How many people are just independently subscribing to stuff like stars? Uh, but I think for sure well people are people are willing to say, I'm subscribing to Netflix, I'm subscribing to Disney Plus. And with Disney Plus, you probably want to include Hulu and the ESPN. So they're all lumped together. Now it's a matter of, so we got HBO Max, we got Paramount, we got Peacock. What are we doing? What are we doing here with the rest of these? And HBO Max leaving the way. So really it's 69 million and you add in the 15 million, what, 76 million subscribers total? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, that's still, you know, a far pace behind Disney. But Disney is the IP king of the international world, you know, in terms of uh, content and classic content, nostalgia-driven content, all the things. Um, so, you know, there's a reason for everybody to have Disney+. Plus. And then you add in the new original content that is everybody always buzzes about, like you said, The Mandalorian. Uh, we've gotten three net three Marvel series, all of which have been critically and commercially successful. Um and we've got uh, two more of those Marvel series coming this seat this year, plus uh, you know two more, three more movies. Um, and it looks like, as you said, if it, certain events come to pass, that we might be beholden to the premier access uh, model for a little bit longer. 
So there's another reason for you to sign up for Disney Plus because you can have access to buying or purchasing these things uh, for a two-month rental by basically because the um, it's a three-month rental because uh, Jungle Cruise isn't supposed to be available on Disney Plus till November, but you can obviously buy it now and only have it for you until November. Uh, same way Mulan was a September release and you could keep it till Christmas. And in Christmas, every, everybody got it. So it's generally a, that two-month window you get exclusively for your $30. $30. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, but the mouse also made some other news in that, that uh, conference call. Chad, tell us more about this investor call. Uh, so we talked about it last week, about the, the release schedule with uh, COVID kicking back up and things like that. And that was addressed on the the investor call in which uh, the CEO, the new CEO, I forget his name. I know it's Bob something. Bob, Ch- Bob Chaswick. Okay. We're just going to call him Bob because uh, I don't want to get his last name wrong. Um, he did say that uh, Free Guy and Shang-Chi are the two theatrical releases right now. And he called them an experiment in, uh, in <laughs> this movie release window that we have here. Uh, he did say that he also commented on the, the, uh, the Eternals. He said they were going to, they were staying in the early fiscal year 2022, which for Disney, their fiscal year starts in November. It either, I think it ends in October and starts in November. Either way, that, that was just a fancy way of saying that Eternals are staying put for right now. And I think there was another one that is in there too that was mentioned but that was he said west side story he said west side story is also also staying theatrical um but the thing is um he did say that free guy was out of necessity he said that there were contracts that they had taken over from the fox deal that they couldn't renegotiate or fix and so they had no choice there and then when his experiment con uh comments i could understand how you know why you would say that because it is sort of true um but at the same time you've already got one marvel star who's suing you uh you don't really want to piss off the other a new another one and it's very clear that that uh the young man who is starring in change she used the movie as an underdog certainly and and maybe in you know in unique circumstances but certainly not an experiment and i also think that that was kind of hurtful being the first Asian movie with an Asian leg cast to be called an experiment. It would, you know, this isn't an experiment. This is a Marvel brand that, yes, right now is tracking somewhere in the 20s to 30s, but who knows, you know? And certainly that's not a ton of money, but, you know, at least it's getting out there. Yeah. So you, you, can, so you can understand where he's coming from. You can understand where the CEO is coming from. You can understand where the star is coming from. Not yet. I mean, nobody wants to say the thing that you worked so hard for. And in the case of Shumi Lu, um, like this has the potential to be his breakout, his breakout vehicle. He can catapult himself into superstardom with this role. Nobody wants to hear that that thing that you're so proud of. You have so much hope uh, and faith an investment in, in. And investment in that it is considered an experiment by the people putting it out. So I completely get where he's coming from with, with his with his tweet 
about it. Um, but I, like you said, I see where the CEO is coming from. I think he could have said it better, but he's saying that, I mean, he's saying what we all know. The, the movie landscape is very volatile right now, particularly because we have another surge in COVID. We don't know when that's going to end. We don't know how, what that's going to look like and how that's going to affect movies going forward. The more we go, the more, the more we see how, how this goes. And at, to date, Disney has not released a high-profile movie. I mean, Free Guy just came out, but like a Disney property all the way through, uh, day and date since the pandemic started. So in in that regard, yes, Shang Chi is an experiment. But you don't have to say you don't say it like that. You say, uh, I don't know. You can, you, you know, just, you say you, you say. The situation is fluid. We are monitoring the situation closely, and we pride ourselves on our ability to make maneuvers at the last minute if if need be. That's what you say. You don't speak specifically to any one film on your slate. You don't speak directly to anything other than just the circumstances. You know, we're, we're keeping an eye on it, and we know that, it, that, that things are volatile right now. We'll see what happens. Like, yeah, if you're going to say that and not point out any specific film, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, even because even if your intention is to keep Shang Chi in the spot that it's in right now as theater exclusive, if you say it that way, you're not saying Shang Chi, you're not pinpointing it as, as the the thing we're examining the most to see what we're going to do with everything else. Yeah, that comes up. That comes off better, but... And it also gives you wiggle room. Because if you do decide to make a last-minute change, then you're, you could just say, well, you know, we were monitoring the situation, and our data and our numbers suggested that this was the right move for us to make. And then you come out opening weekend and say you made $80 million off of Disney+. Plus. Yes, it does take away the... Uh, I don't know what to say, but they, they this was a firm statement that Shang-Chi isn't moving. But I kind of think they wanted to make it a firm statement to say this movie, no matter what, right now, is coming out in theaters and we're not going to change it. And I think they wanted to make that statement clear to get as many people into the theaters as possible. Like, this is it. If you want to see Shang-Chi, you're not getting on Disney+. Plus. We know it's like three weeks out. We know there's a surge but we're keeping it in the theaters and you know that because we're saying it right now. Yeah. It's holiday weekend. We're keeping it in the theaters. We're telling you this right now, no matter what, we're keeping it there. Other way. Yeah. You have wiggle room. Like if it really flares up in the next two weeks, you'd be like, okay, we'll move it. But now it kind of has to come out on that day. And I don't think the, uh, the box office from this past weekend has done anything to dissuade them from that but I, when we get to the box office we can talk about that i don't know i still don't know how these companies see the box office has been happening even this weekend and think oh yeah we're gonna make money on these movies i just don't see them making money on any of these movies but that's just me well we talked last week about acceptable loss um acceptable loss in, in terms of these movies were made before there was a pandemic. These movies um, 
were intended to make billions of dollars, millions of dollars, but not billions of dollars in profit. Like they were supposed to spawn merchandise. They were supposed to spawn ancillary materials. They were supposed to do a whole bunch of things. And then the pandemic happened. And, you know, when Suicide Squad, for example, started filming in 2019, COVID was not a thing. You know, no one saw something like that coming. And so the film and the decisions and the creative choices that were made budget-wise and otherwise were made without the pandemic in mind. You have to account for if you're releasing it in a pandemic that you're re- you're not going to make back the money you would make if things were normal. And, you know, that sucks, but you also can't continue to hold inventory for years you know it's one thing when you can do it with one movie in mad max fury road because of production issues and having to shoot reshoot the movie and all the things when a movie like that has to go through production hell to get to five years of production hell to get to a, a screen and people hold it and wait for just the right moment to release it that's one thing judge dread the 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 dredge movie with uh our boy from uh from the boys and and uh, Star Trek. It's one thing if you hold that for 18 months to find just the right release window. It's another one you would have eight to 10 films like that that you're holding on to. When stars have contracts, when stars want to get paid, when actors and directors have back end deals, and you know they're waiting on this stuff for their livelihoods. Hell, take take the damn New Mutants people who had to keep asking, get, being asked questions about that movie for what seemed like five years before it was finally dumped last August. Um, people want, like, you can't hold inventory like that. You eventually got to release it. And so it ultimately comes down to how much of a loss are you willing to take? And the buzz around Suicide Squad has been that Warner's is happy with the HBO Max numbers. They're not sharing what those Max numbers are, but they're happy with them enough and there doesn't seem to be any animosity toward the studio for for James Gunn and for what James did. It, it's just, as your boy said on Twitter this afternoon, you know, a movie with a similar title and some of the same actors playing the same parts came out in 2016 and wasn't very good. <laughs> and, you know, as much as you wanted to slap from the director of Guardians of the Galaxy on there, it, it didn't really translate that this was something different, you know? And uh, that's that might have been true even in a non-pandemic. But I just we're at a point, as we said last week, studios have to decide what is acceptable loss because you're not going to make profit. And in Marvel's case, you got to release it because you got to get the story going because you're into Phase Four now and things are rolling and the multiverse has been exposed and all the things. Well, that is true. Money still rules everything, and if Disney's like we need the money, then everything gets pushed back. But depending on the surge, uh, I don't know what you do with with Eternals because that might have to change. That's where, you know, this is just from the little bit of stuff I've I've been reading about this virus, the virus surge and stuff. Now, it seems like the, the experts think it should the wave should peak in September and hopefully we'll be to a point where everything flattens out and flattens out for good in November. So maybe we get past the September ride, uh, Eternals and everything is still on the board. 
Um, Marvel can, you know, Marvel can gamble because they got the Disney money. Disney's been doing well enough at the box office where most of their films, they're not making profits, but they're not, you know, they're either not dying on the vine or they're making, they're breaking even. They're they're slow but steady. And all their movies have had the best second week drops of anybody. I mean, even as bad as Black Widow's second weekend was, it was still a better second weekend than Suicide Squad. Yeah, Suicide like, Squad was terrible. Seven million. Yeah. Um, but I say that because of, you know, when we say it, the, the story, we also have to remember there's a third party in Marvel's cinematic universe storytelling, which is Sony's rights on Spider-Man. And Sony will protect that movie at all costs. And they need money. So if things are getting dicey, they're probably going to move. Damn what Marvel wants. So that that's something we also have to consider in all this. That's which they have quite missing. Which they have moved. Uh, uh, Let there be carnage, as we we talked about on last week's podcast. They did move it. Um, my thing with that is the movie was originally supposed to come after Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, anyway. And so if they have to move it, I'm pretty sure they can edit around things and reshoot a few key dialogue scenes and change some ADR up to make it work. I don't think it's going to be, you know, despite what the people on Yahoo News say, it's not breaking news that Doctor Strange is going to be in and far in No Way Home. Um, you know, you can make some clever edits and, and fix that in post if you have to. I mean, Marvel's not that deeply interconnected. This is going to be rough for people that are like, for us people that are waiting for the movie, because we've been waiting for the movie. Have the not movie. seen anything from the movie. And I, I think that is because that is directly because of the surge and them being unsure of what's going on and them holding on to the trailer. So yeah, at this point, uh, if we're lucky, that trailer will be with Shang-Chi. If things keep going the way it is, it might be with it might be with Venom. If it's not with Venom, that means the sucker's probably getting moved. But we have a, a few months to see if people can get their act right and get everything together so we can go back well, they to the also, movie. They season. also have the have Afterlife in November. And they dropped a trailer <laughs> for that. They did. And that, and that trailer was dropped right in the like right, right in the sweet spot. Like things were getting bad, but not quite bad enough. And I think if they had to do it over again, they probably wouldn't do it. They would probably wait to see what uh, what, what this thing looks like. The key is to be flexible and and the key is to have, you know, have insight and take take the risk and decide what is best for you and your studio and your property. Um, and that's that's just the reality right now. No, you know, while we're on box office stuff right now, um, this is a little a little divergent, but. You know, the Internet tells you all kind of things, and I've seen people, you know, that they. They keep talking about the uh, the death of theaters and with all the streaming options and we see what the streaming numbers are for these big movies over the summer, like that this might really be the end of movies. Like the big studios, because they have the streaming option, they can tell the movie, the movies, okay, this is what we want. If you don't want to give it to us, forget y'all. Y'all need us more than we need y'all. And while I get that, I don't think those people are taking into account 
that for these like like take HBO Max for example HBO Max has announced that they're doing a Batgirl movie strictly on HBO Max whereas they also have a Batman film that is coming out from Warner Brothers one has a significantly higher budget than the other why because the studio takes the money from the movies that are made in the theaters and funnels it back so for people that are seeing this and like studios can just skip theatrical and go straight to streaming they're not like just that stream of logic because like they already have a the arm of streaming that does movies those movies can those movies are not up to the same quality i mean they are but like the big blockbuster stuff that takes theater money they can't just get rid of theaters because they need that money to make these big movies otherwise you're going to get stuck with a whole bunch of the basically the made for tv movies that's going to suck everything out of these franchises that you like so i mean netflix is the exception to the rule netflix can go and make a a, a movie like that that one they did with helmsworth or, or what they did with army of the dead where they spent they spent theatrical money but they have theatrical money we have 206 million subscribers to draw from um the the thing is like it's it's a never ending cycle because the idea is that you or it has become in the last ten years is that you make these big temple blockbusters that make four, five, six hundred million dollars in profit. You budget them at like two hundred, two hundred, anywhere from one hundred and eighty to two hundred million dollars. Maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes as high as two hundred and fifty. You double your budget and you make profit, and everything after doubling your budget is profit and you take that profit and you use it to read and you redistribute it to other arms of your studio you use some of it to make the sequel to whatever movie it is but you also give some of it to the awards arm to make indie movies and you take some of it and you give it to the mid-budget or what used to be the mid-budget action section of your studio and you take some of it and you give it to what used to be the rom-com section of your of your um of your studio and it's revenue redistribution you get that you know the lsu football program is the thing that makes money for the university 50 to 85 million dollars a year off of football by itself baseball turns a million dollar profit basketball in a really good year can take it to can turn a three million dollar profit that's it that's the list so it is the 85 to is the 55 to 85 million dollars that lsu football generates that is redistributed throughout the rest of the athletic department so that we can have women's gymnastics and they can have a huge facility, uh, indoor facility and all the rest of it. It's why it's what pays for renovations to Bernie Moore track stadium. It is what pays for a new tiger park. It is what pays for a, the beach volleyball renovations in a new facility. It's what pays for updates to the McClendon practice facility in the, in the uh, indoor facility, the little sleeping pods. Like that all comes from the revenue that football itself generates. And that's the thing. Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar are brands that bring in massive amounts of money to Disney. So no matter how Disney's theme parks are doing or Disney Animation is doing or Disney proper as a studio is doing, it has the massive amount of revenue coming in from Marvel and Star Wars 
and Pixar that they get to redistribute to other places in their business. And if you take away the ability of those three brands to make a whole bunch of money for you, or you greatly reduce the amount of money that those three brands make for you, you reduce the amount of money that you have on hand to help other parts of your business. And then everybody suffers. So, I mean, that is, that's a very good point that you bring up about the way that these things carry entire studios. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up the Netflix movies, which I'm glad you did because I completely just put those out of my mind. But so I looked up the, the costs of the, the highest budgeted Netflix movies and I got a list from Screen Rant. It's from last year, but uh, it has some that came out last year too. So there's five of them that are above $100 million. Four of them have been, yeah, four of them have been last year and this year, um, with the highest being uh, the unreleased Gray Man, which is at two hundred million. Uh, number two is the Irishman, one fifty nine. Number three is the unreleased, but it's coming this year, I think. Uh, Red Notice with The Rock and Ryan Reynolds, that's one fifty. Uh, four is Six Underground, which is one fifty. That was last year. That's with Ryan Reynolds. Uh, then there's one that's from twenty eighteen. I didn't really want to count it. That, that's a little further back, but. It's Outlaw King with the Chris Pine. That's 120. And the last one, which was last year, Triple Frontier with Ben Affleck is 115. But that's, you know, that's six movies over $100 million. Five of them in the last two years. But that's five of them total in the last two years. Whereas if you're Disney, you're looking at that for all of your Marvel movies. They're all over. They're all over 115 at at least. And you're saying you're doing four of those a year. And that's just that's just Marvel. You still have Star Wars. Uh, you still have your regular Disney animated movies. You have your Pixar movies. Those are all pushing the hundred million dollar range. So you're talking about, I mean, at this at this rate, there's probably about 10 Disney movies under all those umbrellas that are over a hundred million dollars in a year, as opposed to five in two years that are over $100 million, that's the difference. Even on Netflix, is, uh, I won't say they, they have their flush for cash because I know they, they spend a lot to make a lot, but that's, that's not $100 million, $100 million plus movies a year. So that, there's your difference. If you want, so if you want to go strictly streaming, one, you're probably looking at an increase in your subscription fee, and you're going to cut down on the amount of movies you get in that range from the 10-ish that we have now, four or five spread across all your different brands, Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, Disney, all that stuff. And, that's, and you're still going to have to produce your Disney Plus content, which that's probably going to eat away in that budget too. So if you think that they can get away from theaters and you still get the same amount of content from that you got from the theaters for the same amount of money, that's just not going to happen. The alternative argument there is that you would decrease the budgets on films and 
that's just that's a novel argument because the mid-budget movie has eroded but the truth of the matter is that that there's inflation to consider and so just because something costs 80 million dollars in 1999 to make doesn't mean it would cost 80 million dollars now to make um you have to consider the price of of, you know uh effects houses and and contracts effects contracts and you know, uh, set designers and set prop builders and all the things that are factored into a budget now where like, yeah, maybe you don't have to spend $200 million to make the Jungle Cruise. But if you cut the budget on Jungle Cruise to $120 million, you know, what gets cut? What changes? What What's different? And I think that's the conversation that would have to be had is, you know, if you give a filmmaker one budget at the beginning and then take it away from them, you end up in the uh, Josh Trank situation where entire sections of your movie get cut before you even get to set, you know, and that's something that creatives just really don't want. So it's going to be interesting. You can't get to billion dollar movies with strictly streaming. You just mathematically can't do it. Netflix can't do it. Disney can't do it. You can't, you can't make billion dollar movies. The only way you make billion dollar movies is by doing $250 million budgeting movies. And if you do $250 million movies, you have to make make that in order to be profitable. So in Disney's case, if Disney spends a billion dollars a year on content across all their brands for theatrical release, but they make $6 million in profit, well, then it's worth it, right? That's $5 billion in revenue. But you have to have that billion dollars to spend. And you in every one of those, at least half of those have to hit so that you hit that number. The problem is they're looking at their slate and they have all these tent poles that need to make money to get to that $6 billion in revenue. And they might do a third of that. They might do half of that if they're really, really lucky. you know. And, and I think that's what the concern is. My argument is that these companies should be in such a financial situation the way that they are run, that they can survive a two-year hit. Can they survive a five-year hit? No. Can they survive a 10-year hit? No. But if you can, like an 18 to 24-month pandemic, which is what I've always thought we were looking at was an 18 to 24-month pandemic, then, yeah, you should be able to to have enough stored up that you can take a two-year hit and then start rolling out in 2023 and making money and going back to your normal being profitable. But you have to be able to do that. The problem for for us is that I don't know that theaters have the liquidation to make take that hit and keep going to twenty twenty three. Yeah the the studios um, they'll probably do some cutthroat accounting, but they can make it through. Like what you said, eighteen to twenty four months, they can make it through that. Yeah, the problem we have is the theaters. The theaters are not in that position. Uh, they make plenty of money, but they're dependent on constant new things coming in, which has been, you know, that's been the problem through the, during the pandemic. So in that regard, it's not we're not really worried about the studio so much as worried about the theaters themselves. But those studios need those theaters. They have to have them. Even if, you know, theater sh- uh, viewing habits have probably changed. We'll see how long, if it really has changed for the long term, but 
they I I do think, and I think Black Widow showed it when COVID looked like it was going down and it felt safer to go out, people went to the movies to see Black Widow. The the question I would have had was, are they gonna keep the repeat viewing habits to to give this thing legs? We won't know because, you know, like we like we said. It was on Disney Plus, so there's really no reason to go out to see it. But it did. I think it did show that people will go out to see the big movies, and that might be the way this viewing changes. That people go to see the big movies, the things that they want to see on the big screen, and the smaller movies might, you know, be there for like a week or two, and then are strictly streaming. But I don't think the theaters are going away. They're just going to be sustained by just pure blockbusters and how do they handle that when blockbusters only come there's a big blockbuster season and then you get a few bookends how do they survive that middle ground so let's talk dune because this is the movie that has its own soundtrack for its making of book this is the (laughs) most pompous (laughs) up its own ass movie that that hollywood has right now and they're going to put it out in October, and they're going to put it out on HBO Max simultaneously. I just want to say, I didn't know about the soundtrack. I think I vaguely heard it, but I wasn't really. Yeah, Hans Zimmer out. did a whole score for the making of book. Anytime Dune comes around, I check out because I know I don't want anything to do with it. It is just not me at all. But as soon as you said a soundtrack for its making of book, the words that followed next when you said pompous and up its own ass were the very first words that I thought of when you said that. So I just want to know, everybody know, we're on the same page on that one. And you know a whole lot more about Dune than I ever will, but that's that, that just reeks of this self-righteous filmmaking stuff. It's reminiscent of, of Nolan last summer. It, it's reminiscent of Nolan last summer running around declaring his film was going to save cinema. Um, Bienville has been very open now, and I, I sent a tweet to Jim asking the question, you know, why is Bienville out there right now, two months out from release, starting to leak details about his second movie? Because the movie's going to, it's going to be split into two. The book's too thick, too thick. They're only doing the first half, and they're taking two and a half hours to tell that first half. So, like, why is he out there right now pitching that second movie? two months before the release of his first movie in the middle of a pandemic where no one's sure that his first movie is going to make enough money to survive. Like it, it's high, high, high concept sci-fi. And it's, it's the last, as I've said repeatedly on this podcast, the last two times that they've tried to do it, one guy couldn't even get it filmed. The other guy got it filmed and it bombed so hard that it almost caused him to stop making movies. So like, do we like, you know, this is deemed the unfilmable novel. Do we really want to like assume it's going to be doing box like the box office on fire? I got two. I, I got two divergent paths on this one. I'm gonna start with the first one. What's the last really successful piece of high concept sci-fi in the movie that we've had? Well, that depends on on your definition. Ex Machina has a really small budget and made a whole bunch of money. And was seen by, I think, more people than Blade Runner 2049, which Bienville made, 
which is also critically loved and is also a very high concept. But again, not as many people, I'd argue not as many people saw Blade Runner 2049 as saw Arrival. You know, it, it's like those those are the three films when you talk high concept sci-fi that jumped to my mind immediately, along with uh, uh, Anonymous or Anamalous or whatever that Natalie Portman girl power movie was that came out in February oh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, with I know Tessa Thompson and yeah, I, I don't remember the name of it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, th- those are the the movies that come to my mind when you say high concept, but none of them are like breakouts, financial successes. Like, I just kind of am at that point where I feel like Dune is going to end up being Steve Jobs, where like you know the Seth the, the Seth Rogen uh uh oh, what's his name Magneto, um, um Fassbender. Okay, so it was Fassbender and, and and Seth Rogen in a Steve Jobs movie written by Aaron Sorkin that was resemblant of a play and structured that way. And critics loved it and thought it was the most amazing film in the world. And everybody in cinema world, nerd world just went goo-goo for Cocoa Puffs over it. And it made zero money at the box office and critically was dead on it, was praised, but social impact-wise, like, social consciousness wise it never resonated and didn't go anywhere you know and that's kind of where i'm afraid dune is heading i I feel like dune is heading for the for the suicide squad treatment where critics and everybody love james gunn's suicide squad but people aren't picking up on it besides you know amblin tweeting out a meme of you know king shark with all the people from jaws so i i was looking up um the other the the other sci-fi movies you mentioned so arrival um it, so it made money but it made money because it only cost 15 million to make it made 36.9 at the box office um and that natalie port film was called annihilation mm-hmm. so let's do arrival see what we got uh man, that was 2016 man so that one now that one $47 million budget made $203 million. So that one did, you know, fairly well. Um, and Blade Runner 2049. And that one, the budget is between 150 and 185, and it made 260.5. See, so his his last two films are Arrival and Blade Runner. 2049 and then annihilation was was uh our our you know black swan dude uh, our it was, uh it's uh no no uh, uh wait which one so banville did arrival and blade runner 2049 those yes. are his last two films yes both high concept what i would consider high concept sci-fi mm-hmm. and then ex machina and that, Annihilation are the other two high concepts in the last five years that I would say. Yep, and they are both, and those two are done by the same guy, Alex Garland. Yeah, those, yeah, those were, those were his last two: Annihilation and Ex Machina. Uh, which Annihilation did not make any money; it was uh, not very well received. Right. But uh, so if, okay, so we're dealing with those are like your. Your high concept, high fan, high, not fantasy, high sci-fi stuff. 
And I think the closest cop is going to be Blade Runner because Denny did it. It's got a comparable budget. Now, the matter of the box office, I would think that Blade Runner box office was a um, was a disappointment. Uh, what was the worldwide on it? Two two sixty. So two sixty worldwide. What seventy five domestic? Uh, I'm on wiki, so it doesn't give me that breakdown. I think that's just total. Yeah, total worldwide. So it doesn't give me the. Um, the reason you're on domestic. wiki is because our good friends at Box Office Mojo now protected by the uh, IMDb firewall. Thank you, yep. IMDb. Yep, but, I didn't even try them. But yeah, that's that would be my thought. Would be it was that that Blade Runner twenty forty nine was somewhere in that ballpark domestically. Yeah, so I would imagine that you know the studio would come into to Dune thinking that it would do better than that. Without COVID, it would think it would do better than that. I I think it's like right in line to do what. Blade Runner did. If there was no COVID, I think Dune ends up doing what Blade Runner did. I think it's going to be well regarded by um, critics and his peers, like his peers that have seen it, like um, um, dang it. Uh, she just won the Oscar for directing. She's doing Eternals and her name just poof. Went out of my head. 92. It did 92 million domestic and it did 259.2 worldwide. So 92 million in domestic, 167 international. Yeah, I think it's going to do just that. It's going to be right in line with that. Um, but it's going to be well received by the, by the critics, by his peers. It is closed out. Chloe Zhao has already seen it. She's praising how it looks and all that stuff. It's going to get all those accolades and people are just not going to go see it. People at No Dune are going to see it, but everybody else, um, I don't think that, I just don't think the high concept sci-fi stuff is like a lot of people's bag anymore. That's why I asked what was the last like successful one because I think now people, I think people conflate sci-fi with fantasy. And I think that's all has to do with Star Wars, which is more fantasy in a sci-fi setting. And people kind of equate those two now. So just straight up sci-fi, especially this kind of sci-fi, I don't really think it moves the needle the way that studios thinks it does. Which that seems to be Banville's bag. Yeah, that's exactly his bag. Make the high concept stuff that's going to give you praise, but you won't be able to continue your story going on because nobody's going to go see it. Unless Warner Brothers has a very successful Batman movie, which can finance Dune Part 2. Uh, I mean, it should have a highly successful Batman movie, but those funds should go back to Batman and not so much uh, Denny Villeneuve. You know they love their Arthur filmmakers. They're not going to let him leave unhappy. Yeah, but they also like money. And we just talked about how much of a hit they're taking for two years. 
I don't know if you you can you can, they can take the hit for two years. Can they take the hit for two years and then go back out there and make another movie that they know won't make any money? And if they do, I'll be highly upset because their excuse for not going on with Superman movies is, look, people don't want to go see this Superman. Well, you just gave this clown some more money to make some high concept sci-fi stuff that nobody wants. The Academy, though, Chad. The Academy. Think about the Academy. No, 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 no. You're going consistency and that's what they need to be the name of their game if that's what you're going to do then don't give him no more money to go make some stuff you know ain't gonna make money but mm. and this is your reminder chad that a joke or two is coming from from the mind of todd phillips i believe that when i see it the only way that happens is if joaquin signs up and joaquin's never signed up for a sequel yeah, he's all. I mean, he said he he doesn't really know about doing sequels, so I don't know. I, 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 all right. I don't think that's happening. I mean, it's just an interesting concept because that's clearly like their wheelhouse. Um, you know, that's that's clearly what they wanted to do. They'd love to make that high concept, you know, awards play with comic books. So, um, even if it is with a very oh hit you over the head dancing clown. Who literally dances to everything? Yeah. Um, so, Chad, let's uh, finish this podcast up with some conversation about King Shark. Who makes King Shark's pants? Does King Shark go to a tailor? And if so, does that tailor get eaten and they have to replace him with a new tailor? What about the wolf, the, the, the werewolf, the, the, the weasel? Did the weasel escape the island just to go kill a bunch of kids in Mexico? Was that what he did? And why would you not definitely make sure the weasel was dead before swimming away and getting your head blown off? Okay, so the second question first, uh, which I've been I've been grappling with ever since I watched Weasel Get Up, considering they have a little box that monitors the vitals of all of said Suicide Squad, and that box did not light up when the weasel got up to run away. Um, nobody noticed that because he ran away right after everything happened. You would think somebody would have noticed that he got up and went away. And like, initially when I saw it uh, the first time, I thought he was going to run, get way into the background and his head was going to blow because he just blew it up because, you know, he has served his purpose. The fact that they didn't, it's like a plot hole for me, but I'm willing to overlook it. But technically they should know the weasel's alive because his, his vital should have blinked back up in the little command center. Now, the first question, King Chart and his shorts. James Gunn specifically addressed this because they were trying to figure out what to put him in, and he decided to put him in board shorts. So the easy answer to that is somebody went to the big and tall shop, got some the biggest board shorts they could find, and they gave it to him. Don't let him go in. Don't let him do nothing else. Give him these board shorts and call it a day. Shorts. Yeah, board shorts. Specifically board I'm, shorts. I'm interested to, I'm, I'm interested that like Stallone is getting a whole bunch of praise for that performance and some of the line deliveries, which is interesting because Stallone has not been known as a tremendous actor and is now once again teasing people with another expendable movie that we don't need. I don't think he gets enough credit for being for his acting is, you know, a lot of people make, he's easy to make fun of with his voice, which 
it's kind of what makes King Shark so fun for him because it's only his voice. Um, but I do th- find it funny that he's getting so much praise for just using his voice when uh, Steve G, AG was actually like doing the physical stuff. But, you know, that's how that's how that goes. But uh, but he yeah. also wasn't overly racist. <laughs> Fubu clothing, Dad. Fubu clothing. Who did wait? Who did that? That, that was on the shark um, on uh, Killer Croc and the Suicide oh. Squad. What? Well, I mean, that's because he was black. So, speaking of Suicide Squad, Chad, let's end with the air cut and release the bat flack as uh, both were trending on Twitter this weekend. David Ayer says his cut tested well, damn it. Yeah, I saw his tweet. I knew that's what this was about. Um, I'm inclined to believe him because I don't believe anything Warner Brothers says about cuts, especially when it's to justify their view of something. Uh, again, whole Superman thing. Uh, the, the reason that they decided to the so-called reason they decided to not go forward with more Superman movies after Justice League, which, you know, people forget before Justice League, they were saying they're going to resign Henry Cavill and they're going to give him another Superman movie. The reason they decided to not go with that after Justice League is that Superman didn't test well. And from everything I've heard, they, from the test, they would say, you know, they would specifically say they like Aquaman. They would specifically say they like Wonder Woman. And they just kind of didn't say anything about anybody else. And they took that to say, nobody cares about this Superman. So if Air says that he had a cut that was te- that did test and people liked it, I believe him because Warner Brothers has no, in- they have no incentives to tell the truth in that case. Because, again, it makes them look really bad considering what we already got. Um, but all that said, as much as I'm bagging Warner Brothers, again, you don't negotiate with terrorists and you've already done it once, so you can't negotiate with air now. You just, you have I mean, to he's have not, a line. He's not buying billboards. He's not starting his cult. He's starting to kind of get into some of the things Snyder did by like releasing concept art and talking about it a bit more, but it's in the consciousness because of the Suicide Squad. Like, it's in the conscious. I mean, the man's thanked in the thanked by the director at the end of the credits. I mean, it's it's bound to come up. Yeah, and I mean, even with that tweet with the testing stuff, it was like he was everything I've seen him really like get adamant about is like him defending himself, which that that tweet was in reply to somebody saying that Warner Brothers never test saying Warner Brothers never tested his movie and whatnot. So that's when he got up and he had, he took a strong stance. So again, he like he only comes up to defend himself and what he believes uh, people aren't seeing about the movie, which, you know, at the end of the day, I, I can I can respect that. He's not it doesn't seem like he's going out of his way to like try to curry the favor of people to get his cut release. And like you said, we're dealing with the second Suicide Squad movie. So he, his keeps coming up. So it makes sense to see it. So when, you know, the way Suicide Squad is going, the Suicide Squad is going, it'll be out of theaters in like two weeks. We'll see how much this whole release the air cut keeps trending after that is out of the public consciousness. 
And what about Return the Batfleck? So people never let this go. And I'm assuming that this was fueled up again over the weekend because I think today, is either today or yesterday, it was Ben Affleck's birthday. And Snyder, like the little troll he is, he released a happy birthday message for him with him dressed up in the Batman versus Superman bat suit without the cow on saying happy birthday. So again, people look at that and they're like, man, that is like what I envisioned Batman to be. And here we go. You start up the return to Batflex stuff. That along with those set pictures from the Flash, knowing that he's going to suit up again. It's just, it just keeps enough to keep the, the, the flurry going that people are going to keep pushing for that. I don't think we're going to get it, but they'll still keep pushing for it and being annoying up until the point the Flash comes out and definitively destroys that branch of whatever timeline we're talking about. Indeed. So that'll about do it for this week's podcast. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at BCW Tiger Fan. And at the mess theory. Thank you very much and have a pleasant evening. Success. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Indeed. So, Chad, uh, we are now five days away from the epic return, one of professional wrestling's greatest names, if not greatest performers, greatest names at least. And six days away from the greatest show of the summer, WrestleMania, in the era, WrestleMania of the summer, I should say, uh, SummerSlam, from the Raiders' home stadium in Las Vegas, with mass mandates and attendance and all the rest of it. So, which will be the bigger event? And which will have the longer impact? Will it be CM Punk making his return to professional wrestling in AEW? Or will it be whatever events has planned for that uh, Roman Reigns versus John Cena main event? So it's hard for me to go against it being CM Punk just for the fact that he's been gone for so long and he's going to be coming back and sticking around AEW for, you know, we don't know how long, but, you know, you probably think it's a while. Whereas the SummerSlam show, um, and by my count, there's two main events with two part-timers, um, neither of which are going to stick around after, you know, a day or two after SummerSlam. Uh, potentially a third one, because I don't know what Sasha Banks is doing after her little stuff. She's been off doing The Mandalorian, and uh, she might be picking more things that way. So if she's sticking around after that. So unless... So unless Cena wins to give him the coveted 17th championship, the the only way that SummerSlam can have longer terms is if they're really going to run Roman all the way through until you get to Mania to have whatever match he has. And even then, he's probably winning said match. So I don't, I, I can't see how it's not Punk. So a couple of things here. One, I rewatched uh, last year's SummerSlam tonight. Um, and it's amazing the turnover from one year to the next in terms of talent on the card and people who were on that show that are no longer employed by WWE. 
But like, think about the fact that like a year ago, uh, the whole the main event was Bray Wyatt, who's no longer with the company as the Fiend, versus Randy Orton. And um, at the end of that match, Roman Reigns returns, four months delayed from having his moment at WrestleMania due to COVID taken away. Vince gives it back to him at SummerSlam. He interrupts the, the match. He makes his big return. And then the next month takes the championship and never looks back, basically. Okay? That return did next to nothing in terms of excitement for anybody past the first 48 hours. So you got the hype after that first Raw, and you got the, the hype of the moment of, oh, my God, Roman, Roman's back, Roman's back. That was all you got. And if he pulls a similar stunt this year, for example, you know, having Brock Lesnar interfere in the uh, in the John Cena versus Roman Reigns match, two guys he's already faced in pre- at previous SummerSlams, actually. Um, I don't think that'll carry weight because people will be like, it's Brock. Brock's a part-timer. He'll come on. Once every three months, he'll put on a good show and we'll all have a good laugh. Like, that is that is what it is. It's not going to shock the world. And Rock has no motivation to show up right now. He's off promoting Jungle Cruise, finishing up filming on Black Adam. Um, and and there's nothing, nothing that comes from that. I mean, it was different 10 years ago, uh, 11 years ago, when he showed up at Raw 1000 and he rock bottom CM Punk in July. Because that was setting up the match they had planned for January. There's not a match here to set up for January. There's a match to set up for in April in L.A. or, or Dallas, sorry. Um, but there's not a match to set up in the immediate. Whereas there's going to be a curiosity with CM Punk. He has not been in a WWF or WWE or professional wrestling ring since January of 2013. His last match was the Royal Rumble of 2013 where Mayor Kane put him through a table. And that was the last time you ever saw CM Punk. So there's going to be that curiosity, even with the Heels show debuting on Stars tonight and some of the in-ring work that he's doing there uh, with Stephen Hermel. Um, there's going to be like some question about whether or not Punk is in ring shape. Does he still quote-unquote got it? And if he still got it, how long can he get it for? Like, is this just going to be like a two or three matches and then he's like worn out and has to take an injury break again? Or is this going to be like, I- I'm here. I'm going to be on weekly television. I'm going to do spots uh, for pay- spot matches for pay-per-views. And I'm going to work Japan when I can. Um, if it's the latter, then I think that we're in for, you know, a ground, the ground shaking on Friday night and staying shaken for a good while after i just don't see anything vince could do in vegas on sunday on saturday sorry anything he he could do in vegas on saturday to change the dynamic the way that punk returning to wrestling and daniel bryan return going to aew on the same night do for aew yeah it's uh considering i'm gonna factor in that um, AEW has gotten better ratings as of not as of late, but 
they're getting closer and closer to Raws. And that's not something that I I don't know how many people really thought that was possible. Like, I mean, maybe just because of how TNA did and people never really taking them serious. But AEW is like, you know, Cody said it, but not what last week. Like, you know, we're not the alternative. We're competition. That's proving to be true. And if they can get um, Dynamite up to similar numbers as Raw, um, it's it'll be curious to see what Vince does then. Because for the past 20 years, he hadn't had to do anything. He could just roll whatever out there, look up and get some good things, but just roll whatever out there, and he's the king of the hill. Younger people skew AEW. And the older people have been propping WWE up, but the more they start catching up, the more people might start, you know, slagging off to AEW and eventually they could seriously challenge as the top dog. And how does Vince respond? He'll have real competition. Will that bring out the best in him? Don't know. Last time he had competition, it was over 20 years ago. He is 76, somewhere in there. Does he change his stripes and do, do something different? I have no clue. But uh, well, it looks like right now he's trying to sell. I mean, he he's shedding contracts and shed and and shedding he's shedding contracts and and shedding debt like crazy. Um, the other con that is running his operation, uh, you know, it seems to be a real deficit hawk, which fine by me, but like. To me, a large company like WWE doesn't get their house financial house in order like that for any other reason. And there really does seem to be a, uh, you know, while everybody's saying 2021 is an outlier with these cuts, I can't see a financial reason or creative reason to let go of Bray Wyatt or Braun Strowman, both of who were, whom were moving merchandise. And when you release guys like that uh, who are top names, the way WCW got going 25, 30, 25, 30 years ago, was by all of Vince's major superstars from his heyday walking across, walking out and going over to WCW. Uh, granted, Piper and Warrior and Hogan and Hall and Nash and all of those guys uh, didn't have the skill set left that these guys have. Mm-hmm. Jericho, even at his advanced age, is still like phenomenally on fire. You know. Kenny Omega is, is the wrestling superstar on the planet. Like Cody has been underutilized for so many years. Now he's getting his chance to shine. Like, uh, you know, it, the bullet club is doing its own thing. Like it, it, it's, it's just different. And, and I don't know if he's trying to sell or not, but that lot, I don't also, I don't know that he knows how much money Tony Khan has. Because he keeps saying that's not like Ted Turner, who brought all of Ted Turner's weight of all his resources to bear on him and his competition. I don't think he realizes how much money Khan has. Like, Khan probably has more money at this point in time in history than Turner did when he bought CNN, you know, or when he when he created Time Warner Media. So I don't know what he's like. The whole sleep is competition. I've heard that for years. Sleep is competition. Everything on television is our competition. No, it's not. You're not competing against the people who are watching the Roseanne reboot. You're competing against you're competing against people who want to watch things like Ring of Honor 
and Impact and Pro Wrestling Guerrilla back in the day. And people who literally would have watched a feed of Ohio Valley Wrestling if it had been available. Like those are the people like that you're competing for eyeballs with. And NXT lost. Like NXT was a niche product that worked on the network, didn't work on broadcast. That that following did not follow them. Um, AEW's has, and it will just be interesting to see what impact Friday night and Saturday night have on the wrestling business going forward. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've, you know, I finally broke and started watching AEW and I enjoy it. Uh, it's, it actually, it feels like how I, I would, I've wanted wrestling to be booked just from the few weeks I watched it. And I, that's not to say it's all, you know, great, but I enjoy it. But uh, they they are doing things that at least the smart marks want them to do, which is fine. And that is good. I don't know. I don't know what, well, I just don't think Vince is going to change. So I don't know what's really going to happen. I think, I think they'll have what other 12 or so pay-per-views they do. I think half of them will be really good because they will be built around main eventers that are really good, but then nobody else is going to get anything, but we're also in a point where they, they only put certain people on TV. So it will feel repetitive for like half of the time. And they're gonna have to they're gonna have to keep reaching to the past to get these stars to make these big monumental matches because they can't make big stars. I do think um I know everybody has problem well have had problems with Roman. I think this last year they did all the things people would have wanted with Roman. They've done them. Um I think he's better off for it. And I think whenever he decides to turn, he could he could be another he he'll be another one of those oh shit we in trouble we can call this star back kind of guys. But it's him and who else? Maybe Drew, and that's it. No, there, there's, I wouldn't even say Drew. It's him and Seth. It, it's him even, and Seth, and that's it. I wouldn't even say Seth. Why? Because they buried him on the roster with the whole uh, with the whole chosen one gimmick over the last year. I mean, I mean that, let's not forget, let's not forget he did main event WrestleMania thirty five. It it doesn't when I'm when I'm the kind of star I'm talking about I'm talking about about like base level like John Cena got a guy like right now Cena comes back he's the biggest thing on the show everybody's cheering for him. By the time Roman's done with this whole little thing he'll be to that level. Seth is not to that level now. They would have to build him back up to get to that level, and I don't think they will. I think he'll be – Seth will be like – he'll be like Randy. Randy but they is have like, a, but they have a depth. They have a depth problem, Chad, in that if you want to keep feeding the beast, so to speak, from here to Mania or even from here to the Rumble, that means you have to have guys to feed to Rome in the matter. Yep. And they don't have that. Nope. Like, like the reason that you're calling John Cena in is because you don't have anything, anybody that you built 
that can credibly go against uh, Roman for the championship. The reason that you're bringing back Goldberg is because all your metrics say he's really good for your ratings. And you needed somebody to credibly go up against Bobby Lashley, who's been literally destroying people since Mania. So, I mean, if you don't build stars, yet you have the deepest roster of stars of talent on the planet, that's on you. You know, it's the LSU 2012 offense all over again. You know, you have a, a NFL drafted quarterback, an NFL drafted running back, and 2,000 yard NFL Pro Bowl wide receivers. And you went to the Outback Bowl. You know, it's, it's, it's like, okay, you've got guys like, like Orton and Edge and uh, Orton and Edge and Rollins and, and you know, these guys. Uh, but you're not, what are you doing with them? What, you know, and, and how are you utilizing them? And how are you building guys underneath them, the Garganos and the, uh, and the Keith Lees and the Valentine, well, not even the Valentine Dream anymore, but like those level of guys, what are you doing? How are you helping them get ready for their moment? The way that you got guys like Austin, Rock, Mankind, Taker, Kane, uh, John Bradshaw Layfield, uh, you know, Batista. How are you getting guys ready the way you got those guys ready? Because those guys were were mid-carters to lower mid-carters before they elevated themselves to main event status. And, you know, how are you developing guys now is the issue. Well, that's the thing. They're, they are not. Like, I mean, we can, we can put the whole NXT situation aside. Um, but when you bring up the NXT champion in the, his first night on Raw on the big show, you job him out to Jeff Hardy when he has been undefeated. That kind of tells you everything you think about that. And those are the guys you're supposed to be cultivating to bring up to the main roster. But every time you bring one of them up to the main roster, you immediately bury them. See Keith Lee. You bury them or you repackage them. Yeah, and you take away everything that made them what they were. So you're not you're not building anybody up. Like it's constant. Um, everybody stays at the same level because they constantly, nobody can beat anybody to go to elevate themselves. It's you beat this guy and that beat, that guy's going to beat you the next, the next week. Nobody advances. So when you have to have championship matches, you're like, oh, so you just throw somebody up there for a regular pay-per-view. For, but for these big ones, you got to go get an old retired dude. And yeah, you know, here's your four weeks. <laughs> yeah, but and Cena, like Cena, makes sense. You can make sense of Cena. It's Goldberg, who last time he came was last year for the exact same thing to face Drew in a match where Drew go ahead is hurried up and he went over him as he should. He should look strong against this old man, just like Bobby Lashley should look strong against this old man. But if that's the case. Why are you doing this? Well, we know why. Because you have nobody else. But when you're all you can call up are these old dudes to face off against your main eventers, who by most standards are all on the older side. 
you, you're looking at twofold problems. Now you don't have anybody for them to face. And within the next five years, when they start getting out of there, you have nobody to replace them. Yes, why the new edict to developmental, no one over 30 starting out. And we want them bigger. I don't, I get the over 30 thing. That makes sense if it is, you know, it's a, a kind of developmental thing, but, you know, they're going to be exceptions. I don't think these hard rules are going to help anything. Now, the big thing, it's, it's Vince's MO. He likes big guys. Um, NXT is like the, the land of the midgets, and he doesn't think he can get any of them over. Uh, I don't think that's the case, but that's where we're at. 